Today we're going to continue uh, in this topic. I'd said to you that uh, I think that most of life or most of our issues in life can be traced or tracked back to four uh, basic questions. Uh, and I've, I've called them questions that matter. Uh, they are, is there a God? I want to kind of drill these into your brain. Is there a God? You have to establish that, have to, have to come to some conclusion there. Number two, if you accept that notion that there is a God, then the next question is, what is this God like? <clears throat> uh, what is the character of this God? How, how can I know uh, what this God is up to? Third, <clears throat> what does this God expect from me or require of me? You could even use that word. What does this God expect of me? And then the fourth question is, what can I expect then from God? Those, those seem to be the questions that matter. I think about it, you know, sometimes we have heard questions that don't matter. I, I remember when I was in seminary uh, some years ago, I had a brilliant New Testament uh, a teacher named Dr. Joseph Wong. Uh, he spelled it Wang, but he called it Wong. And I still don't know how that happened. But none of us confronted him. Uh, he was the kind of guy, he barked his lectures out. I think I picked a little He He'd ask a question in class and you'd, uh, no! And you'd go, okay, okay, you know. Uh, but Dr. Wong had this habit that when you would see him on campus uh, and talk to him, when he walked by you, he never stopped. He'd go, hi, how are you? And you'd kind of go, huh? <laughs> I mean, literally, I mean, he would just say, hi, how are you? And just keep moving. Well, that, you know, that went on for about three years for me. And I realized that that was not a question that really mattered to him. He really didn't know how. I was going to say, well, you know, Dr. Wong, of course, I have to tackle him to stop him. He was an interesting guy. He was a tenured professor, and I made an appointment with him one day to discuss my program. And I, I looked at his door, and I'm not exaggerating, okay? This, you know, preachers sometimes exaggerate. His office hours were Monday, Wednesday, Friday from 8 to 8.10. <laughs> and on Tuesday, Thursday, from 9 to 9.05. <laughs> right? <clears throat> I'm, I'm not exaggerating. He's a tenured professor, brilliant New Testament scholar. I learned so much from him. I remember I knocked on his door, walked in. There wasn't a book on the shelf. There was an old raincoat on a hanger, and it looked like a janitor's closet. And he's sitting there with his hands like this. What can I do for you? And I thought, well, there's a lot of things, you know. <laughs> Here's what's a little interesting. This guy kept asking this, but it was, it was never important to him. It wasn't ever important. Hi, how are you? 20 years later, I take a group of students to visit the seminary, and we get there late on a Wednesday night. We traveled all day, and for some reason, Dr. Wong is there at the hotel on the campus, and uh, he's there helping some students get checked in. He had a real strong ministry with a lot of the Chinese students. There were a lot of Chinese students that went to seminary there, and so I thought, well, you know, here's my opportunity, and so I went up to... Dr. Wong and I went. Uh, Dr. Wong, Cliff Sanders, uh, class of 1985, New Testament historical criticism. He goes, hi, how are you? And walked right past me. <laughs> I guess consistency is something that's of a value. <clears throat> you know, I, I just stood there again like this guy doesn't act, care how I'm doing. <clears throat> it's not a question that matters to Joseph Wong. Of course, you know. Uh, so, so the idea of questions that matter, uh, there are all kinds of, this one matters, and this is it. We said, what does God expect from me? What does God expect from me? And I want to, uh, if you're interested, last week I discussed how, uh, for some of us, this might be a disturbing question because we may think grace means there's nothing for me to do. But I said last week, I'm not going to spend any time on this, but I'll just remind you that provision typically requires participation. Provision... <clears throat> requires participation. I could provide some money for you and put it in your bank account. That's a provision. You didn't do anything about it. You didn't earn it, but you've got to participate if you're going to be involved with it. So there is this sense of, there is a, a matter where provision requires participation. And so the idea of what does God require me? What does he expect of me? Now, we, we trust knowing the character of God, that what God expects of us is something we're capable of. It would not be an unrealistic expectation. It would be something we can't do. Uh, you know, so, so the idea of that. And then I, I put this quote in here. I'm going to run through this because Becky told me I can't spend long here on this review. 
the idea is this, is that grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. That distinction is important. The Christian life isn't just doing nothing. It, 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 there is effort involved. Now, there's no earning in this. There's no uh, uh, receiving any brownie points from God because of this. There, there's no way in which I kind of achieve my way into this. But, but, but grace is not opposed to effort. It's simply opposed to earning. And so, as a consequence, we're looking at what does God expect of me? What does he expect of me? And I made this statement. I think this is the next one here. It's this. <clears throat> It's embrace your creaturely status. Embrace your creaturely status. You know, at some point in our life, we have to come to grips with that we're not God. We act like it sometimes functionally. I've talked to my students about a person is a functional atheist. They're not an intellectual atheist. They don't say, I don't believe in God. They just function as an atheist. They, They just act like everything's dependent on them. It's a functional atheism that, that, that gets to rolling. And, and, and much of our issue here with God is to finally accept or embrace our creaturely status. That I'm not the creator, I'm the creature. I'm creating God's image, I'm, I'm a value, so are you. But that seems to me to be the starting point. What does God expect of me? Not all these details and things, but to say, Cliff... Accept the fact that you're a creature. You need me. And when you act like you don't, you're actually denying who you are. You're you're denying who you are. You don't have the ability to control things as much as even as you try. You know, but sometimes uh, embracing uh, that uh, kind of of, uh, understanding takes a while. There's a fascinating study about a couple of guys named Kruger and Dunning. And so as a consequence, they got the result, the, the, uh, the research named after them. That's tricky, isn't it? Uh, see? see, Brian, if you and I get some research, we could name it Sanders and Brian. So, <clears throat> yeah, who knows what we could come up with, right? Yeah, yeah right. Uh, Kruger Dunning, uh, uh, it's, a, it's a very, uh, it's, repli- it's been replicated lots of times. It's a fascinating uh, study in terms of people embracing who they really are, <clears throat> in terms of really embracing who they are. Uh, The study goes like this, that typically all of us overestimate our abilities. All of us overestimate what we're capable of. Uh, In fact, the study of research indicates that uh, in in everybody, until you grow up a little bit, uh, everybody, uh, that the, the people that are the most incompetent rate themselves higher. It's a fascinating study. Uh, The more incompetent a person is, the higher they rate themselves. It's because they don't know they don't know. (laughs) Yeah, I I tell students when you come to college, here's the the process. You don't know, you don't know. That's called bliss. (laughs) Then you take classes. Then you find out you don't know, and now you know it. That's painful. (laughs) Right? Right. So, so this embracing of ourselves to say, you know, what am I capable of? What am I not? I remember, any of y'all remember George Scramstead? Who, who remembers George Scramstead? Yeah, great guy. Uh, uh, and uh, I had a student years ago who came to my office. That's a danger zone as soon as they do. You know, they know when they come in. And uh, he had been to a conference. You know what a 20-year-old who's been to a conference is? Dangerous. <clears throat> This 20-year-old kid uh, came to me. He just wanted to talk to me. And I find out he's been to a conference on worship. And this actually happened. Um, he uh, tells me, and after we talked a while, he'd been there, he said, well, you know, crossings, this was probably about 10, 12, this was probably 12 years ago. He said, you know, crossings is never going to grow. <laughs> and I went, yeah, enlighten me, sensei, you know. I didn't say that. I thought it. <clears throat> I don't say lots of things. <clears throat> Enlighten me. And he said, well, uh, crossings is never going to grow until you get someone up there that understands worship. And I said, do you, do you, do you, do you, just like that. 
my brain is working so fast I can't get it out. I said, and now I'm hot. I said, do you know who does the worship at Crossing? Yeah, George Scramstead. You think, because you've been to a conference, that you know more about worship than he does. Can I ask you a question? How many churches have you been the worship leader of at this point in your life? None. Get out of my office now. Right now. Get, no, no, get out now. Leave before I do say something. <clears throat> right? what, what is it? His incompetence caused him to ratchet his understanding of himself sky high. And so as a consequence, he could not embrace the fact <clears throat> that he didn't know. You know, I think, I think we struggle with this. I think sometimes part of our problem in Christian living is it's hard to embrace our creatureliness. Now, I'm not I'm just talking about saying you're a slug, you're no good, you're bad. I'm simply talking about the idea of our creatureliness that I need God, that, that I need Him in the center of my life. We resist that, we reject it. I still think part of it is because we've not settled question two. What kind of God is this? Can, can I really trust Him? Can I really depend on this God? And so, so this idea of embracing, so how do we do that? How do we embrace our creaturely status? How do we do that? That's, a, that's an important uh, distinction, I think, here, and that's this. Uh, I said last week, and I'm just going to run through this real quick, the place of repentance. In, your, in your, or your note there, you can write this. Jesus' first sermon was found in Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. When it says in the text, when John had been put into prison, John up to this point has been preaching and declaring the gospel or preparing the, or preparing the way for the gospel. And, and, and Jesus begins his ministry with this. The time has drawn near. The kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe in the good news. So Jesus' understanding of life and his ministry was the notion here of repentance, of beginning, the place. And I've said, last week you can listen to a recording, but if you trace this word down, you'll recognize that it is throughout the New Testament. John the Baptist, the early church in Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost, the response was, what do we do? Repent and believe. Uh, Acts 2, Acts 3, Acts 8, Acts 17. Uh, Jesus' words to all the churches in Revelation, in the book of Revelation. And so, 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 so this idea of, of uh, how do I embrace my creaturely status is written. So the, the next question is this, and this, this is why I'm, I'm running through this. What is repentance? It means to change the mind, <clears throat> literally, metanoieo. It, it, it means to change your mind. It's it always fascinating because I, I'm thinking, about what? <laughs> change my mind about what? It doesn't, it doesn't mean uh, that, that you, that you uh, feel bad about yourself. It, doesn't, it means you change your mind about who you believe is capable of running your life. That's the change. My, my mind changes that who is capable of, of running my life. Up to this point, it's, if I haven't embraced my creaturely status, I think it's me. When repentance occurs, when it happens, we're going to talk about how it does. When repentance, I, I, my mind changes to say, okay, Cliff, you're no longer qualified for this. This, this is past your pay grade. And I love what Brian Chappell says about this because sometimes we have all kinds of things about where repentance like that. But repentance is less about doing and more about depending. Don't think of repentance in terms of doings. Think about repentance in terms of depending, relying on, trusting in. When a person embraces that creaturely status, when they finally come to grips with that, when they, when they finally, through a series of events, or we're going to talk about how God brings that, but, but through that process that I'm now changing my mind to the extent of I'm depending on God, not just doing. I, I think we've talked too much about doing. But the idea of depending. So we, we finished last week here. Next week. What causes one to repent? Well, I, you know, I, I think, I didn't say this last week, but I, I think there is, this, I think life has a way of beating the certainty right out of you. Anybody with me? 
I, I think life has a way of beating the certainty right out of you. And, and beating the sense that, hey, I, this boy needs help. You know, when I was 19 or 20, I, I knew everything. You, you could ask me. I would have told you. When I was younger, I mean, I just didn't have enough experience in life or with the challenges of life. So, so in that one sense, but, but what causes one to repent, we said last week again, number one, the Holy Spirit, John 16. And I, and I suggested I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with it. And, 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 and I, you go back. I, I, I hesitate to do this again, but I, you know, Peter says this, I'm going to stir your mind up through way of remembrance. So I want to say this again. I'm personally convinced, and I think I have some lexical or lexicon evidence that in John 16, when it says, when the Spirit of truth comes, the Holy Spirit, He will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and of judgment. That word, elekon, can be translated convince. And I said to you last week, I think the reason we don't repent is because we're not convinced. You can feel bad about what you're doing. You can feel guilty about what you're doing. You can think it's a bad situation what you're doing. But until the Holy Spirit convinces us that this is not what we ought to be doing, we'll probably keep doing it, right? Isn't that way we're wired? I mean, I, I, I know people that know what they're doing is bad. I know people who know what they're doing, they feel bad about it, they feel guilty about it, and what? They don't change. You know why? They're not convinced. So, so the Holy Spirit comes, I want you to think about changing that word there in your mind. He will come to convince the world of sin, righteousness, and of judgment. When that happens, the game changes. I'm willing to embrace my creaturely status. I'm willing to embrace. I want to say, you know what? I'm convinced. And I said to you last week, ask God to do that for you. Ask God to do that for you. Through the power of the Holy Spirit to say, convince me if you've got an issue or a thing you're wrestling with or a sinful habit or a, or a practice. Ask, say, hey, I don't, I don't need more conviction about this. I feel guilty. I feel bad. Convince me. So God's Holy Spirit. Number two, <clears throat> Romans 2, 4. <clears throat> John 16, the Holy Spirit, Romans 2, 4. <clears throat> Paul said, don't you know, it's the kindness of God that leads you to repent. It's God's kindness. When, when, <clears throat> when we repent, it's finally because we recognize the incredible kindness and goodness of God. That he, that, that, that he has been merciful and gracious and long-suffering and patient to me and to you. To finally say, you know what, I, I, I want to live a life that, that brings honor to that person. To the kindness of God. Now, we kind of ended last week, and here's where I'm going to pick it up. <clears throat> we kind of ended. That was pretty fast. I didn't get the high sign from Becky. She, she was going to give it to me. <clears throat> but I, I just, I, I, listen, it's important. I think this is important stuff to just keep putting in our brain. Um, <clears throat> I said last week, and I'm going to try to work through this in a little more detail. Um, and th again, the thoughts and opinions of this teacher are not necessarily thoughts and opinions across community churches, elders, or leadership, so you don't have to agree with it. Um, but I said last week that, that when we get into this heavy conviction idea, if you will, where you, know, you feel like God is beating your living, your brains out, beating living daylights out of you, and it's not his kindness, it's his thundering judgment, you know, that... That is going to get you to straighten up because you're scared to death. I, I suggested that it might be a problem for us here. That the motives of repenting or changing my mind out of fear of punishment or the promise of reward might still be completely selfish. Because it's still all about me. I don't want to get hurt. And I do want to get rewarded. And I just want to dig around here a little while because I, I'm, I, and Jerry made a point, and I agree with him. I think a lot of us, <clears throat> um, probably when we first became followers of Jesus, you know, got the bejesus scared out of us, you know, right? And I told you, and I went to youth camp where the last night they preached on hell with a big bonfire. Nobody had eyebrows after the service. <clears throat> I don't know how many got saved, but we didn't have any eyebrows, I know that, <clears throat> right? Thundering scared us to death. Can I just say, and again, you don't have to believe this, but I'm 53 years old now. 
And there have been a lot of years that I've had to commit to unpacking a lot of churchianity that passed for Christianity. A lot of rigid, religious rigmarole for what is the gospel. I'm serious now. <clears throat> I mean, I mean I, I, my life challenge has been for years, and I'm still working on it, is to make sure I understand the gospel. Not the churchianity, not the religiosity, not the phony baloney, good time rock and roll stuff I heard, but I mean the gospel. And I've been spending my life doing that. And so I, you know, think about this this week. You know, God knows our heart, and he knows when somebody's just scared to death and wanting to go to hell, and they don't know what else. God knows our heart. I, I believe he honors that, re, re, responds to it. Honest, I, I really do. I think that selfishness he knows is there. He's going to work on it. It's probably going to have to get worked out in a discipleship process. If you don't get worked out of that, my judgment is you, you're going to have real problems in your life. If you don't get out of that fear and anxiety, this guy's going to pop me every chance he gets. You're going to have real problems. I did, and you know, I ran off to seminary to do that. So, I, so I'm just saying, I, I want you to consider that sometimes we heard a lot more religion than we heard the gospel. We heard a lot more of some religious kind of commitments and thoughts. And so my, my life has been, and still is, to make certain that, that I'm reading the gospels and I'm understanding the gospel and I'm understanding it in its clarity. And I will tell you this, I, maybe it's disturbing. I'm not there yet. There's still some things I'm still working on. I hadn't got this all nailed down. And that's okay with me. I, I'm, I'm still working on it. I got a couple of things that, you know, I just, uh, just got to get it worked out. So <clears throat> this notion of, I want to I wanna press us to say, you know, is, and I want to try to work in that direction to say, if, if you got you know, charged into this thing by just terror. Um, there's a discipleship process there to help work some of that out. And some of y'all are involved in that, I know. And, or, 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 you know, you got in the gospel because of all the goodies. You know, problem is when, when the goodies don't come, that's where we're going to number four. What do we, can we expect from God? When you get brought into this thing with all the goodies and then you don't get all the goodies, now we're in trouble, Right? Some, some people have a, a whole theological process, they call this. There, there's some discussion all the time about prosperity kind of gospel kind of things, and there's lots of discussion in theological circles. So, so here, here we go. So I want to ask you to turn to 2 Corinthians 7. And we're going to spend some time here. And, and go to your table of contents. That's in the front. That's where all the pages are. 2 Corinthians 10.99. And, and I just want to ask you to consider, is this making sense? Or, or, are you okay? I, I'm not saying that if you, you know, became a Christian because you were just scared to death like I was at youth camp that you're not a Christian. I'm not saying that. 2 Corinthians 7, what, did I say that? Huh? Jerry. Right. Yeah, for the recording, he said, I don't know how a 12-year-old can understand much other than maybe the reward or, or the, you know, I want to go to heaven when I die or, or I, you know, don't want to go to hell if I do die. I agree. I, this is very, I'm just telling you, this is thorny ground for me. I, I, don't, got, I don't, got, don't got it all figured out. That sounds like an educated person. <clears throat> yeah. I don't got it all figured out, as, I, as you can tell. Um, but I'm wrestling with this to say... Uh, is there something in our approach sometimes to the gospel that really needs to be clear, clear, some clarity here? That this is serious uh, stuff to say to people before we start just clamoring with, now repeat after me. You know, now repeat after me. Uh, to, to, to work. And I, again, I don't want to turn it into, you don't have, to have a PhD in systematic theology to become a Christian. You know, I know a lot of PhDs in systematic theology that aren't Christians, but. There's some clarity here. Okay, so we're, I want to look at this because uh, we talk about what causes one to repent. 
We've said the Holy Spirit who convinces us. Number two, the kindness of God. And then I want to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Okay? 2 Corinthians chapter 7. This, uh, 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 this is part of Paul uh, uh, writing back to the church about a situation where he had had to help them discipline someone who'd been living in crazy sin. Uh, and I'm going to just start reading at verse 9. He, this is his second correspondence with them. He had told them, hey, you know, deal with this guy in the church. Take care of him. And he says this, I now rejoice not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. See, here's the idea of, of, of sorrow or, or grieving, the, the, the word here is. Now, this, this, is, this is difficult and dangerous. Go back to, stay in 2 Corinthians. Go back to, sec, go in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. <clears throat> this is part of that same discussion with this guy. Or that, you know, had, had done this stuff. And Paul, if you, if you don't know, it's in 1 Corinthians 5. A guy's been living in some immoral relationship with his mother. And Paul is just te tearing that thing apart and saying, you got to kick this guy. you got to deal with this guy. So notice here, he says in verse 5 of chapter 2, remember the word sorrow I just showed you there? But if anyone has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order to say not too much at all. Sufficient for such a one is this punishment, which is inflicted by the majority. So on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, one might be what? Overwhelmed with what? Excessive sorrow. So here's what I want to lay down first. There is a place for sorrow in repentance. There's also a place of excessive sorrow. Too much. Too much. I want you to hear this. I grew up in a church that if a little bit of sorrow and a little bit of guilt was good, what? Lots more was better. That's not true. There is such a thing as excessive sorrow where a person is now broken. Not embracing their creaturely status. Not, not saying, okay, you know what, God, I think it's a better idea for you to run my life than me. Now, that, that's good. Excessive sorrow, we might call it shame. Or despair. I'm never going to get any better. I, I, I've been so bad, God will never deal with me. See, Paul, Paul said, be careful, he said. Be careful. Notice he said, lest they be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow. Now keep reading. I want you to watch something here. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. For to this end, I wrote also that I might put you to the test whether you're obedient. In other words, are you going to deal with this guy or not? But one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Why? So that. See that there, verse 11? What, why did he say do this? That's so that. That's the purpose clause. What is it? Why? Huh? Come on. Come on. Read it. Come on. What? That's worse. No, here I'll read it. That's worse. That's worse. It's worse. It's a bad idea. It's a bad idea. This is what you call bad classroom management. Right. Okay, verse 11. So that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan. We're not ignorant of his schemes. What's the scheme of the devil here? Huh? Excessive sorrow. Now let that drop in there for a second. What's his scheme? Paul said, hey, forgive him, <clears throat> lest he be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. And whoever you've forgiven, I've forgiven. Hey, forgive him. We're not stupid. That's not actually, so we're not ignorant. <clears throat> Of Satan's schemes. Listen, sorrow for sin can be too much. Too much. There, there are people who in repentance, when they come with sorrow, because we're going to go back to seven or second, you were made sorrowful. Okay, good. I mean that, sorry. Not so much that it's excessive. 
And again, I don't think I heard this growing up. Again, I told you, I've been spending the rest of my life trying to figure out the gospel. I heard a lot of stuff and I heard a lot of things. But as I got older, I began to say, whoa, wait a minute. This doesn't fit. This doesn't make sense to me here. This isn't, this is nuts. And, and so Paul is saying here, you, you better not be ignorant of the devil's tactics. One of them is excessive sorrow. Does that make sense? You ever thought about this? Man, this is, this, this, is, I never heard this as a kid growing up. And anytime I thought the Holy Spirit was dealing with me, I thought the Holy Spirit was trying to drive me in the ground and make me feel terrible about myself and make me feel horrible about myself and make me think, well, you should all just give up. Everybody else is doing lots better than you are. I don't think that people meant to do that, but that was the result of it, that I had excessive, I lived with that cloud of sorrow. And there are people with shame, man, that tags it, just like that gets in them and they can't get out from under it. So, 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 so Paul says, I'm glad you were made sorrowful. But see, in seven, he's already laid down in two. Don't let this get excessive. So go back to seven. Yes. Mm. Okay, for the, for the recording, let me say, uh, 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 Ruth, <laughs> my brain. Yeah. 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 Yeah, pray for women that are incarcerated who have gotten the message, you're a piece of dirt. You're a piece of dirt. Nobody wants you. Nobody cares for you. You've, you've failed too much. And that shame and that excessive sorrow will kill them. It'll kill them on the inside. And it can produce even consequences of physical harm to themselves. This is real. I mean, you know, and this is where it's kind of irritated me over the years. And, you know, I'm an irritable person somewhat. <laughs> I will tell you, this has all been hilarious. At Asbury Seminary, the approach to inductive Bible study is IBS. And it is. <clears throat> It's called inductive Bible study, but there's another acronym for that <clears throat> that we all said when we took it, we thought, yeah, I got that too. <laughs> but, but the thing that's so irritable and irritating is that the church is the one that has the good news, the gospel. That's what it means. But somehow we made the good news bad news. So, somehow we turned it around. And it's not that good. I love what William Barclay says. We'll come back to it. William Barclay said, the good news, euangelion, is the word that makes a heart of a young man leap with joy. That's what the gospel is. It's the heart of a young man that makes him leap with joy. I didn't see much of that. So I want to work now on seven. Go with me here. I now rejoice that you were made sorrowful. Again, he's already laid down in two the distinction, so he knows the distinction here. But you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance, for you were made sorrowful according to the will of God. See, repentance comes from the sorrow of sin that leads to repentance. It doesn't, re it doesn't lead to self-recrimination. It doesn't lead to, to, to talking bad about yourself. It doesn't lead to feeling bad about yourself. It leads to repent, to change your mind about it. So that you might not suffer loss. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Now, I want to draw a distinction here because I think I have to. In this passage here, there are two types of sorrow. What are they? See it there? Huh? Right there. What? Okay. Godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. There are two types. Again, I never heard this, and this, I hope, will help unpack some of this. Let me suggest a couple of things to you. Uh, here's graphically the way I do it. I can't draw on PowerPoint, so that you're going to have to deal with this. Uh, in, in worldly sorrow, 
the way this works is this. There are people who are sorry they got caught. There are people who are sorry that things really went bad. They're, they cry about it sometimes. You know, There are people that feel sorrow for something that has gone bad for them. And it sometimes looks like repentance. But it may not be. Because here's the thing. In worldly sorrow, the goal, in my judgment, is self. I'm come back to this. Look, any rational person that has themselves as the goal of their life, self-comfort, self-peace, self-joy, all those kind of things, and they're going in life like this, I mean, this is the way they're going, partying, you know, whatever. Whatever they think brings them comfort and peace and joy and happiness. That's where they're headed. But then they find out a place, about a place called hell that will not be comfortable, will not be fun, it won't be happy. And because this is in place, they're willing, if you will, to not change the goal of their life, but to change the means. This is the whole reward punishment model. And so what I do is I'll become religious. I'll ask Jesus into my heart. I'll go to church. I'll pay my tithes. I'll do things. But because the self is still the goal, nothing changes. In fact, if I don't get the reward, I'm going to get angry, probably. Ticked off. God, you promised you were going to do this, right? And you didn't. So I'm angry. Or uh, I, I, I don't feel like I, uh, life works out the way I want it to be. See, th this person hasn't changed the goal. They just changed the means. I tell my students this, um, <clears throat> because they want self-comfort and self-peace. Here, here's a case of a person. This person will not steal from you for one reason. They might get caught. And this is going to change their comfort zone. They get caught, they may go to jail. It's not because it's a self-chosen principle. It's because if I get caught, it's going to be painful. It's going to be bad. And so the worldly sorrow is sorry they got caught, but this is still deeply in place. This is why I want to say again, fear of punishment, promise of reward, and my judgment makes this get deeper and deeper and deeper if we don't deal with it. You don't have to agree with that, but I'm just, I'm just telling you, this is what worldly sorrow does. Everybody's sorry they got caught. But they're not sorry what they did. Or they're not sorry that it was a chosen idea. This is why I've said to my students, I think very much preaching of judgment or damnation or hellfire and damnation, if you want to call it that, just reinforces this. I, when I was a pastor, um, which I'm not now, but I, on, on Sunday nights, every once in a while, I'd just say, hey, how are we doing? You know, how are we doing? And... Um, because I, I didn't want to preach again. <laughs> well, Sunday night, man, we're still doing that Sunday night thing. Remember that? Hallelujah, that's over. <laughs> um, and I remember one night I said, how are we doing as a church? Are we, you know, making progress? Do you think we're, we're working? And I had a, an elderly person in their 70s, which is not so elderly now. <laughs> Boy. It is when you're 35. <clears throat> it's a mature. <clears throat> now, this... Older saint <clears throat> stood up right in front of everybody, you know, and in front of God and everybody and said, uh, well, you know, after church, sometimes I have to go home and listen to Charles Stanley. He fed. And I thought, oh, boy, here we go. You know, I'm not feeding him. And I thought, OK, well, you know, you ought to be old enough to feed yourself by now. But well, <clears throat> I didn't say that. I thought it <clears throat> and said, well, you know, sometimes I have to go home and listen to Charles Stanley after church. And I said, hey, he's great. I, I'm not going to defend myself. You know, I've just I learned that a long time ago. And I said, uh, you know, I, I just, uh, great. I, tell me what channel he's on. And uh, <clears throat> then, then they said this. They said uh, to me, well, Cliff, we just think every once in a while you need to preach some hellfire and damnation to make us understand what's at stake. And I thought, I didn't say this, but I thought it. <clears throat> 
How can you follow Jesus for 40 years and I still got to scare you into being good? You mean I got to scare you into being good? I'm concerned here. I'm concerned. This might be, could be, I'm just saying, I tell my students, this could account for why so many religious people on surveys say they read their Bible about once or twice a week. They pray about once or twice a week. You know, I've been digging around on my students at the university and some of my seniors. they got a class now. They have to turn in every Monday how many times they read their Bible and how many times they prayed. I know that sounds legalistic. You know why? Because they're not. I, I, I don't understand that. So, so, so this idea of the self staying in place, to me, this is worldly sorrow. I just don't want to get caught. I don't want it to go bad for me. Is that, does that make any sense to you? Is that, okay, let me, let me talk to you about godly sorrow. Godly sorrow. I want to suggest that when Paul says, for godly sorrow brings about repentance. Let me, let me, let me read this, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, out of, on that last line there for you. <clears throat> the goal is self-comfort in, God, in worldly sorrow. It's comfort, I'm sorry, it's conformity, not character change. I want to say it again. Worldly sorrow, there's conformity, <clears throat> but not character change. People will conform, they'll look good on the outside, they conform, but there's no character change on the inside. Godly sorrow, on the other hand, I want to suggest, when it says it brings repentance or a change of the mind. Here's, in my, in my view, I'm just trying to do it graphically for you. <clears throat> Same thing, but something happens to the goal. The goal changes. What was the goal in worldly sorrow? Self. The goal here is the glory of God. When I'm convinced that I need to embrace my, my creaturely status, that he's God, I'm not. He knows how I ought to live, I don't. He's got more understanding of life than I do. Then I want to live my life to his glory and honor. Go look at 1 Corinthians 10.31 later. I'm going to ask you, it's, in the, uh, it's actually in this application that you might want to memorize it. When Paul says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. In other words, what I'm doing now, because my mind has changed, is to say, this activity or that activity, I'm not asking, ooh, will I get caught? Ooh, will I get in trouble? Ooh, will this cause me sin? Ooh, will God whack me? No. Does this bring glory to God? I want to ask you to consider this. I've been talking to my students this for several years. This will change your approach to Christian living. Don't ask, is it wrong or is it right? Or am I going to get in trouble? Or is it, is it a sin? Or, you know, like I said, you know, the Methodists say it isn't a sin. The church of God say it is, right? So what are you going to do? I'm going to go join the Methodist church. Okay. That's what I said when I was in high school. So quit asking that question. Ask the question, does this activity, action, attitude, thought, practice bring glory to God? That's the goal of my life now. I'm not asking, am I going to get in trouble? Am I going to get punished? Am I going to get hurt? No, no. Is this bringing glory to God? I mean, I, I do this. I'm not, I'm not saying I'm perfect. I, I do this when I'm watching television sometimes. You know, I'm a guy. Becky uh, made me watch The Sound of Music six times. I made her watch Under Siege twice. Steven Seagal. I'd like to see Steven Seagal and Julie Andrews in a movie like that. Pow! <clears throat> anyway, it's not going to happen. <clears throat> it's not going to happen. <clears throat> but there are times when I'm watching television and I'm saying, okay. I mean, I like to watch TV, entertainment. Is this program I'm watching something bring glory to God? Is the way, <clears throat> is the way I'm spending my time is that going to bring glory? Now, I'm not saying you got to be a monk <clears throat> or you got to be always, you know, chanting and praying. But I think it clarifies the issue to say, does this bring glory to God? Yes. Hmm. <clears throat> yeah. 
I, I, he's, for the recording, that in relational evangelism training, they say making God the center instead of ourselves as the center. In other words, if I'm making, if I'm hearing you right, if I'm making self the center, it says, you know, if you die, you're going to hell. Well, it's pro- it could be true. <clears throat> but now I've just made me the center. Instead of saying, what if you lived your life from this day forward to bring glory and honor to the creator who made you? I said to Marty years ago, we, and I'm not against Evangelism Explosion. It's been a tremendous tool where they ask the question, if you were to die tonight, do you know you go to heaven? It's a good, it's a good tool. I said to Marty years ago, I said, why don't we ask people this? If you wake up tomorrow, you got enough of a reason to keep living? Do you really have a reason? <clears throat> so if I'm hearing you correctly, I think when we make it all about hell and damnation, we do make it about us. I'd, refer, I'd reference, ask you to go to Romans 1 later. Starting verse 18, where Paul delineates the reason that God's judgment is coming. It's not those verses, it's not 24 to 32 where we usually think, all those lists of sins. It's back in 18 to 21, or uh, 23, where he says this. Although they knew God through creation and concept, although they knew him, they refused to honor him or give him thanks. That's the nature of sin right there. Right there. And Paul sees that as the cause of God's judgment. They refuse to honor him as God. Okay, you're God, I'm not. Or give him thanks. Okay, thank you. Let me ask you to consider this. What if you ask God to help you change the goal of your life with respect to repentance in a specific area? Is there an area in your life, my life, that we need to repent of? What if instead of just saying, oh man, now Cliff, you better not do that this week. You better not do that this week to say, hey Cliff, what if you decide that in that activity or that situation, the goal this week will be God's glory? Can I do this? Can I participate in it? Because it will bring glory to God in a specific area. Change your mind about something so it brings glory to God. Memorize 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or whether you drink, do it all to God's glory. It will simplify your life. All of a sudden now, I've got one question to ask. One thing to deal with. Will it bring glory to God? Stuart. Bring glory? uh, I, I will use John Piper's statement. Make much of him. Piper says the idea of doxa is the idea of make, making much of God. Uh, one song we sing sometimes is make him famous. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you for outing me on that, that it's so churchy. Yeah. Oh, yeah, she's saying uh, for recording, uh, pleasing to God. I just, now this could be my own neurosis here. But, um, and the scriptures say that, you know, that we would live pleasing to God. There are just some people I know that when they hear that, they've lived a life where they feel like they're so displeasing to God all the time. This is now an achievement thing. Kind of an achieving thing. Of pleasing, but I, I, I wouldn't disagree. I, I, I think this pleasing God, this bringing glory, making much of Him, saying this is the way God said the word. But by the way, let, we, we're going to come to this later, some some week. I, I, when He says this whole thing with Jesus is repent because the rule of God is here. I was talking to some guys the other day. You know, the kingdom of God is the rule of God, where God is king. I think the church is incredibly positioned, maybe in ways we haven't for centuries, to say, with all of the garbage and rotten leaders in our world today, political, financial, you name it, we're surrounded by people who are immoral leaders. I've got a kingdom you can be a part of 
where there's a good king. You can trust him. You can depend on him. I think we may be positioned to say to people, you know what, there's a kingdom. There's a citizenship now in the kingdom of God where there's a good king. You can trust him. He won't say one thing and do something else. He won't take your money and spend it on a bunch of phony baloney. He's the kind of king that you can trust. Why don't you put your trust in him and quit trusting in all these others? I think we're positioned for that. I think people are ready to listen to this. And ready to hear that there's a kingdom, the rule of God, that we can be a part. Well, i got to finish on this. Let me, uh, on your outline, there's something else, obviously, we didn't get to. Isn't that a surprise to you? Uh, I I want to end with this, though. It's time for you to to go and me to shut up. This this notion of repentance, again, I I want to connect it here real carefully. This this notion of repentance is in changing my mind by embracing my creaturely status. That's what it is. Quit fighting. Quit trying to control. Quit quit trying to to think it, it all depends on you. And embrace it. The stress and the strain that we feel because we're trying to be God and control things is eating our lunch. And when we repent, it's not some just religious idea. Remember, repentance is less about doing and more about depending. Less about doing and more about... Now, I don't know how that's going to look in your life. I'm, I'm learning what it means in my life. But you can just take a big, deep breath right now. Okay? Take a deep breath like that and just say, I'm going to embrace my creaturely status. I'm going to embrace it. I'm going to take it on this week to allow God to work in my life as I change my mind about who's in charge. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we need your help more than sometimes we imagine. And today we've looked in your word and discussed things and thank you for the comments and ideas that people share Because we want to be people who have embraced our creaturely status. Not in some fatalistic kind of way. Not in some kind of uh, where we're just blowing it off. But to embrace it in a a vigorous and and a, a powerful way of knowing that you've come to live within us and to change our minds about who's in charge. Help us this week to live with a sense of all that we do to bring glory to you. We really need your help with this. We, all of us, my, me included, we're all so deeply self-centered that we need your help. So help break that loose. Help us to live this week to do everything we can to your glory and honor. We pray this in Jesus' strong name. Amen.